You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. I don't know about you, but I find it's a little hard falling asleep at night during this chaos. What do you think? You have trouble going to sleep? You probably don't watch three hours of news before bed, as I do. Whatever is recommended, as they call it, sleep hygiene, I think it's fair to say I do the opposite. Uh, But it is the opposite day. You know, every day has been the opposite day. Plus, I get news alerts on my phone. So even though the sound is off, and I I promise you I never leave the ringer on, I get these little buzzes all the time. I I feel like I'm spasming. I hear a buzz. Oh, no, what happened now? Another buzz. What happened now? And then the Washington Post and CNN and the New York Times and whomever else, Associated Press, whomever else is buzzing me, they have the same story. So it's buzz, 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 buzz. I know I could cancel the news alerts. I know I could live a much more stress-free life. But you know what? That's not me. And another thing is I want to know what's going on. I could sleep better if I didn't. But, uh, you know, that's not me. I'm in the communications and media field, if you could call it that, a field. (laughs) Ha ha. And I need to know. And I want to know, but then my body doesn't really obey. What I'm feeling is that no matter how riled up we get with the news alerts and the beeps and the buzzes and the lies and the partisanship and all of that, is that we have to be true to ourselves. We have to locate our true self and our true north. And if your north is like mine, it's being jarred on the hour, if not more frequently. We just have to figure it out. Maybe all of this will come to a head soon, and then our lives can return to their previously scheduled routines. That would be nice, wouldn't it? So this week, I appreciate my five things even more than usual. What a segue. Number one. Learning to write a little bit more personally. Now, I know everybody's written memoirs. You don't have to be ancient or aged or even wise to write one. I know people who've written multiple memoirs. I'm sure you do, too. Multiple, multiple memoirs. And then here's the next two years of my life. Or just write essays about things that have happened to them and what they've thought and what they liked and what they hated and so on. Well, I don't do that naturally because I'm not interested in sharing. I like to give. I don't like to share. There is a a huge distinction. So I haven't. But lately through this blog, I talk more about myself and it's not horrible and I'm getting better at it, I think. Number two, I like dresses and I find myself being more and more attracted to dresses. Now, for years, I didn't wear dresses. For years, I only wore jeans. I basically just throw on jeans every day. But dressing in a dress is so easy. You don't have to think of it as fancy, which is what I always did. You just think of it as simple. You put one thing on, and you don't have to coordinate a top and a bottom, and then the shoes and which belt, blah, blah, blah. It's just a dress. I think we're very lucky fellow women, sister women, that we can wear a dress. I mean, really, that is a privilege, although I see a lot of men wearing them in my neighborhood. Number three, my exhibits, as you know, my exhibits are my children, my science experiments that went very far awry. My exhibits are verbal. And I really appreciate that. They know how to express themselves, which is a great gift. Each one has a distinctive voice, both in their written and spoken dialogue and rhetoric. And some have noticed that talk was a somewhat competitive sport in my family of origin. For worse, not really for better, I think I've passed that along to my exhibits. And they really can tell me how they feel, what's going on, and also explain the world to me as they see it in their 20-year-old eyes. They're all in their 20s. Number four, Malbec. 
that lovely spicy red wine. I call it spicy. I don't know how else to describe it. It's full-bodied. I'm going to call it spicy. Now, I thought it was only grown in Argentina, this red grape, but I understand from my producers that it was first grown in France, and now you can grow a Malbec everywhere. It's not like Champagne or Port where you need a special appellation. Malbec is very good for watching the news no matter what network you watch. And it's very good over a big, juicy, impossible burger. Did I have one yesterday? I might have. Number five. No, it's not Robert Mueller. Uh Uh-uh, no way. It's Nancy Pelosi, our Speaker of the House. What a cool person she is. And when I say cool, I don't mean groovy, hip, and young. I mean calm, focused, in control. She just seems to not be phased by the craziness going on. And I have faith in her. Today's guest is historian Sarah Milov, the author of a fascinating new book about the history of the cigarette and its role in shaping American polity and commerce. And I want to admit... I do miss a cigarette. When I see someone smoking, I think, would it be so wrong if I just took a puff? But I think it would. So we'll be back with Sarah Miller. My guest today is Sarah Milov. She is the author of the new book, The Cigarette, A Political History, possibly the best book cover I've seen in a long time. It's also her first book. She is also an assistant professor of history at the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's university, and she is a new mom. So with all of that, welcome, Sarah. I'm so glad you could join us today. It is a a true pleasure and a delight. Thank you for having me. Well, I I have so much to say about smoking um, and cigarettes, but the first I want to say is when you are a former smoker, as I am, the desire for a puff of a cigarette doesn't actually go away. And I'm sure you know the history and science behind it, but I just want to say that in the interest of transparency, that I was a very happy smoker for short blocks of time in my life and not such short ones. And even though when I walk through a smoker's area, it smells terrible, and I think, how could anybody do that? I remember so well doing it. So I just had to say that because... Smoking has a bad rap. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it weren't pleasurable, we wouldn't be talking. Nicotine's a hell of a drug. Of course there's pleasure in it. Okay, so was there ever a time in the history of tobacco when it was considered good for you? I have definitely seen old advertisements in which Dr. Jones says, all my patients smoke for to promote digestion and stuff like that. Um, Was there ever a time when it was actually considered beneficial? Well, no, that the cigarette itself was considered beneficial, no. The the idea that doctors smoked is, is actually born in fact. There was a period of time where doctors were in the in the 40s and early 50s where doctors were a very heavily smoking population. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but what you're referring to is a very canny advertising strategy on the part of um, the cigarette manufacturers who pioneered so much um, in advertising. And they knew that if uh, people thought that uh, even their doctors are smoking, it, it must be good for you. But but in that, but in that advertisement, it kind of betrays almost the sense that people did not think it was good for you, that they had to be convinced that their doctor was smoking. I totally have to share two things. One is my longtime um, physician, long gone now, but he lived to be to be an old man. After he examined you, he'd have you come into his office where he would light a cigarette. That's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting moment. And my dentist used to smoke a pipe while he worked on my teeth. What well, were they telling us? Well, they probably weren't telling you not to smoke. They were, were they telling t- us they were weak, weak, weak. 
<laughs> Were they saying do as I say, not as I do, or they just didn't bring it up? They didn't bring it up ever. But it's interesting because I never brought it up either. And now it's too late. But it's, it's yes, that when you see your physician smoking a cigarette and you assume, well, if he's smoking one after every checkup with me, he's probably smoking eight, 12 times a day. I guess that does suggest that um, the public outcry was a little over dramatic. Well, there was um, one of the most significant studies in the history of smoking and cigarettes actually came from this population of doctors in Britain. Um, and what researchers found, and this was in the 1950s, this is a very early um, study of the relationship between smoking and lung cancer, was that Doctors in Britain smoked at high rates, and they died of lung cancer at very high rates. And prior to the 1950s, lung cancer was an extraordinarily rare, rare. Mm-hmm. disease. And so to see this population, you know, uh, upper middle class population, otherwise in good health, to disproportionately have this disease, it kind of informed the basis of the British government taking on the smoking issue. And they actually came out with their version of the Surgeon General's report um, a couple of years before we did. So doctors actually do play um, a role in this history as as smokers themselves, in addition to their role as, you know, later telling people not to smoke. It's interesting what you say about Britain, because, of course, they may have come out with it first, but they allowed smoking in public till way after we did. Um, but we knew about emphysema. We didn't know about lung cancer. Isn't that right? Wasn't emphysema the, the warning that your parents or your friends or, or office mates would, would say to you when you were lighting up? Well, in 1964, the Surgeon General releases the, the first report on smoking and health, which is this really landmark document. Prior to this time period, the Surgeon General was I'm overstating it a little bit, but kind of a nobody. Like mm-hmm. nobody would have known who the Surgeon General was. Um, the office kind of becomes famous and alive in American imaginations because of this report. And it's what links um, cigarette smoking to lung cancer and, in fact, um, to, to heart disease, but mm-hmm. most importantly, to death. Yeah, death is kind of... It's a, it's a biggie. It's a biggie. It's yeah. a biggie. Well, your book covers covers the politicizing of tobacco. Um, in in the South, which crop was more important to the development of the identity of the region? Was it tobacco or was it cotton? And and wasn't that kind of why tobacco made its first became popular? So. What I what I basically show in my book is that when we think of the rise and fall of the cigarette in the U.S., we tend to think about um, smoke-filled rooms, tobacco executives misleading the public, and then slowly, belatedly, the science shows that smoking was bad for you all along, and eventually the government, um, you know, gets on the stick and right. regulates cigarettes. But what your question kind of gets at is the extent to which actually tobacco was a really important part of the politics and the economics of regions like the South, but also the, um, you know, the whole United States. So in the 19th century, it, the cotton was king. Sla- cotton plantation slavery right. um, was tremendously important, not just in the South, but the whole world over. And the in whole the- world actually used the cotton grown in in the southern United States. That was the cause of a lot of trade, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. And um, financial systems in Europe, in Britain, even where they had abolished um, slavery, they were still tied into the 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 um, cotton the cotton economy. Right. Um, in the twentieth century, the region begins to look a bit different, and this goes back to the involvement of the federal government. So in the 1930s, the federal government takes an active interest in farmers, and this is because of the Great Depression and the thought that uh, 
cratering farm economy, which was even worse than the than the depression that people were experiencing in the cities because farmers had been in depression since the 20s, basically, since after the First World War, mm -hmm. that if you couldn't revive farmers, then you really couldn't revive the whole of the economy because um, purchasing power overall was going down. There was a connection between how much farmers had to spend uh, in their pockets and uh, whether or not somebody in the cities had a job. And so the federal government begins to implement what we would call today farm subsidies, mm -hmm. a whole um, a whole plan for how crops are going to be grown. And cotton has its own policies, but the policies in tobacco are are really interesting because they're so rigid. They're so against what we think of as the U.S. free market mm -hmm. economy. Basically, you get you can only grow tobacco if you are licensed to grow tobacco. And unlike other crops where you grow on hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of acres, tobacco farms are really, really small, just maybe five acres of tobacco um, that people are licensed to grow. So basically, you have hundreds of thousands of farm families across the South that have been given the privilege of growing tobacco. Other people can't get this privilege, only they have this privilege, um, as a way to shore up the regional economy. And so this is one example of the federal government having an active hand in uh, making the cigarette, not just kind of the cigarette companies uh, leading the way. Oh, right. And I read that uh, that sometimes farmers were told, well, you may have 10 acres, but you can only grow tobacco now on six of them. And they still made more money than they had before the Depression. Yeah. I mean, it was a really high value per acre crop. But the but the government also said, just like it said in industry, oh, we're going to give you a minimum wage. It said in agriculture, well, you're going to get a minimum price per pound. And it might surprise you to know that this system of really strict supply restriction mm -hmm. and also pretty generous support lasted until 2004. What? Yeah, like many decades, five decades after the Surgeon General's report, this system was still in place. Why? Because it represented a politically valuable constituency. I mean, even today, I think we'd see the outsized importance of farmers to politics. I mean, right. I think the latest number I saw was um, farmers have received $28 billion just in direct subsidy to offset Trump's trade war, which is many times over what the Detroit bailout was. Amazing. You know, it was a politically important constituency. Right, right. And interestingly, also, the companies, the, the tobacco moguls in the 20th century were considered kind of royals in a way, or maybe I'm talking about the 18th century, but Duke University was named mm. for a big tobacco mogul, uh, Wake Forest, got right. That's all the, R.J. Reynolds. R.J. Reynolds family. There's even Renolda Hall, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, that that's kind of a mill village yes. um, in Winston Salem. It's a really interesting place. But I think also what you're pointing to by saying, "Well, tobacco is associated with kind of robber barons in, in a way." Uh, that's a better way of putting it. Yes. Yeah. Um, that also helped tobacco farmers because. In a sense, these farm subsidies were standing up for the little guy, standing up for the little farmer that was routinely taken advantage of when they went and sold their farm, uh, sold um, tobacco mm -hmm. uh, to, to big tobacco. So the federal government gets involved for basically 70 years of supporting tobacco farmers, which in a way does end up supporting the industry as a whole. Right. It couldn't help but even though, let's say, the instinct looked purely generous towards the right. small the small man or woman was was tobacco ever how did how was it discovered as um a thing that you smoke as opposed to a thing that you boil and eat or a thing that you wrap your your um christmas gifts in <laughs> well i think there there were many ways of uh consuming tobacco and actually um well, I guess to, to answer your question most directly, I think that colonizers observed Native people smoking mm -hmm. tobacco at it, at moments of first encounter in like the 15th and 16th century. So it goes way back. But 
actually, it was not until the 1930s that people consumed tobacco more through a cigarette than they did through other means. It was, and, it was very late. And it was considered unladylike for a long time. Unladylike? Actually, you know, for lack of a better phrase, not not totally white, not totally uh, Anglo-Saxon. It was something that immigrants did in uh, tenements in New York. It was something that um, it was associated with Jewish immigrants and Italian immigrants and not not the native stock. And so there's kind of a tobacco temperance movement, a anti-tobacco prohibition movement that goes on in the 19-teens. Um, and a handful of states actually ban the sale of cigarettes in much the same spirit as um, uh, alcohol prohibition. Amazing. Amazing. So the sort of, for lack of better term, outsider, even though the Native American was as inside as you could be, <laughs> what were the users of this product, of this crop? And at some point, you wrote that American, white American farmers from North or South Carolina actually traveled to China to teach the Chinese how to grow tobacco? Well, so this goes back to the idea that farmers are such a special constituency of the government. So we've got this program that's in uh, the tobacco growing states wherever, where in order to grow tobacco, you have to have a license. And after the Second World War, uh, farm leaders are worried that there's going to be a surplus because after the, sec the First World War, every farm product was in surplus, and that's what caused, caused the crash of right. the 1920s for for farmers. And so they get together and they say, hey, like we're close to government now. We can basically do things differently this time, and plus we've got this system that says we're never really going to make too much tobacco. So what they end up doing is getting – States, so getting state legislature first in North Carolina to say anybody that grows tobacco has to pay a tax on their tobacco, and this tax will go to fund promotion abroad. And so farmers end up funding this promotional vehicle that goes to countries first all over Europe, mm -hmm. but then all over um, Asia and to some extent Latin America basically touting the virtues of American-grown tobacco. Um, and this happens at a very important moment because it's in the late 1940s that uh, Congress is hammering out the details of the Marshall Plan. And so tobacco farmers basically end up being promoters of their own tobacco, which is transported uh, to Europe under the auspices of the Marshall Plan, more than a third of food aid goes to the procurement of tobacco. Wow. And of course, emphasized by all the war movies in which GIs are smoking in their bunkers. I mean, Absolutely. The it, patriotism of the it. The patriotism of smoking. The fact that you get cigarettes in your ration box or mm -hmm. whatever. I mean, if, if that wasn't romantic, I don't know what was. Some heroic you know, William Holden or, you know, I can't even think who, smoking at war. David Niven, my God, he smoked in everything, and it made it look so fantastic. James Bond, of course, smoked too. I oh, mean, yeah. the sophistication <laughs> and the fact that that cigarette you have after shooting the enemy helps you think and work out the plan for your victory or whatever, your conquest. Yeah, and it wasn't just um, thought of to promote, I don't know, consumer glamour, because what was going abroad was not a pack of Marlboros or um, a pack of Chesterfields. It was actually the raw tobacco. Right. And the reason this is important is because the countries that received the tobacco were very eager to get their hands on it because that was a primary source of tax revenue in countries that had been war ravaged. So there was an equal eagerness on the part of governments that were receiving the tobacco. So really, tobacco is one is taxed at every step of the way. You're paying to 
you're paying to get a license to grow it. You're paying a tax to export it. The exporter, the importers are paying a tax to get it. And then the customer, the consumer, is paying taxes on each pack. Well, yeah, then that tax argument becomes part of the defense. It ends up being something the tobacco industry uses later on when it comes under political attack to say, oh, we're so beleaguered. We're taxed at every step of the way. We contribute so much to the coffers of the government. How... What more can we do? Uh-huh. What What was the high point of consumer use of tobacco cigarettes in the United States? Well, in the 50s, rates are over 50% for men. Um, but there's always a gender discrepancy between uh, men and women, uh, men and women's smoking rates. Women's rates never really get above the mid 30%. And when the Surgeon General comes out with his report in 1964, overall rates are at 42%. 42%. But but still, even though that sounds high today, the rate's like 15%. But I think there's this tendency to look back at this period because of the influence of tobacco in Hollywood and just the how large it looms in the cultural imagination to say, well, everybody was smoking. But in fact, that was rarely the case that you would be in a situation where every single person was smoking. It's just that tobacco smoke was ubiquitous, even if smokers were not um, the majority. Well, think about um, Mad Men, which when it was new on television, everybody commented on the smoking and the drinking. It Mm -hmm. did seem like that was ubiquitous. You're right, even if many people didn't smoke. And of course, now we know that if you didn't smoke but were surrounded by people who did, you were still on the receiving end of all the crummy stuff that could happen to your lungs. Yes. And that is the kind of second half of my book is examining how did this kind of tobacco world disappear. And my, my argument is actually that it wasn't knowledge about either what cigarettes did to the smoker or even the science itself surrounding secondhand smoke, but it was a movement of activists who argued that as non-smokers, they had rights. And this seems so obvious to us now, maybe. We live in the world that non-smokers made, but the idea of a non-smoker kind of had to be invented and had to be asserted that that such a person existed and such a person deserved public recognition. Yes, I was surprised to read that the first organizational effort to ban smoke was made in 1978 when I was enjoying um, the fumes and the and the taste of my vantage cigarette. Um, <laughs> the heroes of your book are really these inspired individuals, the activists of of the last forty years who've made such a difference in our world. It's hard to remind people listening who maybe are younger, maybe the age of your students, maybe a little beyond that, who don't remember a time in which restaurants were filled with smoke, airports Mm -hmm. were filled with smoke, trains were filled with smoke, airplanes all had smoking sections. I repeat, airplanes (laughs) had smoking sections. People smoked in elevators. People smoked in college classrooms. I smoked in one class. People smoked in hospitals. Oh, in hospitals, right. Mm -hmm. They smoked in hospitals. They smoked in cars. They smoked in taxis. You could smoke in restaurants in the area where people were eating. I I, I mean, the smoke was everywhere. And less and less of it was on the street because you didn't need to smoke outside because you could smoke inside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it was funny at first to see people smoking in doorways in the rain and the snow, but it was almost like they had been, you know, when your teacher in lower school or elementary school says, Joe, out of the room. And Mm -hmm. they all looked like people who had been put in detention outside their office building to smoke. Well, they had. And they had, yes. That was the avowed goal of 
the non-smokers' rights movement. It was it to was make to smoking, shun to it was shun to make the smoking smokers socially unacceptable. Right. So you know that the I don't think um, in intent many of the activists would have said we they would not have intended to punish smokers per se, but the effect of um, the laws that they succeeded in passing or the the workplace restrictions that they succeeded in getting implemented had that effect, basically exile smokers from common spaces, um, at least some smokers, because if you were the boss, you probably could just shut the door and smoke in your office. So, I mean, probably at least at first, more frequently, it was uh, people who were not high up in in whatever office or building that they worked in that were um, shunned smokers in the doorway. That's right. And so if in the 50s, the high point was 50% of men and maybe 42% of women smoking, what is what are those numbers today? Today, the rates are 15% um, overall. And there's a couple percentage points discrepancy between men and women, but that disparity actually between the genders has um, come down. But what um, more striking today is the, you know, I mean, I think everybody recognizes this instinctively. It's the classed nature of smoking. In the in the 50s and 60s, smoking was not understood to be the pastime or or the a habit of of poor and uneducated people. But through the 80s to today, it became that way. You know, that's sort of heartbreaking. The people who can least afford it are spending the money on cigarettes and or stealing cigarettes in in some cases um, or selling Lucy's, as they call them. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Yeah. To think about the non-smokers rights movement, like the, let's just take a couple steps back, because I think it was an in part an unintended consequence of of this. Um, so the Basically, Surgeon General comes out with a report in 1964, smoking causes cancer. And in response, Congress, which, again, is the province of pro-tobacco Congress people at that time, basically writes a really weak warning label so that cigarette packages warn people, but instead of causes cancer, it's a may, may be shown be sh- to. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it, it's a watered down version of what regulators hope to have um, as a, a stronger warning label. And so in response, activists begin to think, well, we need to get around this paradigm of consent. We need to get around the paradigm that says, well, if you choose to smoke, that's a legitimate choice of yours. And so the genesis of the non-smokers rights movement is basically in the living room of a woman named Clara Gowen, who lived in College Park, Maryland. And she basically had observed that she was imprisoned in her house. She could no longer go out to dinner with her family because her daughter had this horrible tobacco allergy and got sick whenever they went out to dinner. So she and her friends basically said, okay, we're going to do something about this. We're going to at least stop putting out ashtrays in our own home. That was that would be That's, their first move of activism. I'm so old, Sarah, that when I went away to camp when I was a kid, one had to make an ashtray for one's parents, which <laughs> one's parents used. <laughs> so, right. so removing an ashtray. It was a political act. Was a political act, yes. Wow. Yes, it would cause her to get, to, she realized that there might be some friction when the, her household hosted people that smoked. She would have to say, sorry, we do not have ashtrays. You do not smoke in this household. And this was something that caused her enough anxiety or she felt like she needed enough solidarity uh, that she spoke about it with her friends and uh, they implemented the same uh, rule in their house and they ultimately formed a group called GAS, Group Against Smoking Pollution, and disseminated ideas um, about how to reduce smoking in voluntary ways. Um, So, for example, gas chapters would send letters to doctor's offices just asking them to consider going smoke-free. So this very tentative steps, but steps nobody had done before, 
Um, and the goal here was to kind of make people aware that smoking did not have to be the social default, that it was should not be a given that everywhere you went there would there would be ambient tobacco smoke, to shift the mm-hmm. prerogative from smokers to non-smokers. So Fascinating. Kind of, yeah. yeah, there's this social movement going on. And at the same time, one of the places where this contest between smokers and non-smokers happens the most is at workplaces. And so there's a court case in uh, the 1970s where a woman basically sues her employer, New Jersey Bell, uh, because they're smoking on the job and it's making her sick, the court rules in her favor. And this, in fact, was landmark, but mm-hmm. not because other courts did the same thing. They didn't. But this woman, her name was Donna Shemp, she basically becomes a one-woman consultancy trying to get workplaces to be afraid that their employees would sue them. And so she basically goes on the road with a consulting kit to try to get workplaces to go smoke-free. And one of her primary arguments is that smokers are bad workers, that they take too many breaks, that they cost too much to insure, that they damage equipment, that they're out. That they cough and smell mm-hmm. bad. Yes, that they're, they're bad workers. And I think, in part, this business case against smoking is part of why we see a class discrepancy between smokers and non-smokers today. Uh, I get it. And so office workers and white-collar people were much more available to those messages, were in front of those messages, as opposed to people who didn't work or were working in blue-collar in jobs. Blue-collar yeah. jobs. Yes, right. yes, absolutely. Right. Who, the management case works toward the managerial class. And right. you begin to see businesses en masse adopting workplace smoking restrictions. And actually, these workplace smoking restrictions actually help people quit. I'm sure. I'm mm-hmm. sure. What um, Now, today, vaping has mm-hmm. come in as sort of the new worry, the new risk. Is everything that we worry about with vaping the same as everything we worried about with smoking a cigarette? Vaping is so interesting because whatever you think you know was outdated. 10 minutes, you know, in the last <laughs> yeah, 10, 10 minutes. minutes Every ago. single day, there's a new a new development on the jewel beat. So I think most people in public health would agree that vaping is not as dangerous as smoking. Um, I think we're kind of have internalized how dangerous smoking is. We've just assimilated it. We don't think about it very much anymore, but mm-hmm. it kills almost half a million people each year. You said it kills more than uh, well, it is. It does lead to heart disease, but it kills more than uh, murders and suicides it, combined. Yes. Yeah, Amazing. it kills more than any other, basically, type of accidental death combined. Yeah, I mean, it still continues to be astounding. So I think when we talk about vaping, we should always be mindful that the comparison here is something very, very dangerous. And um, the, and then, you know, we're now um, uh, decriminalizing marijuana, which mm-hmm. is also smoked. I mean, there are lots of ways to take it, but I, I'm just wondering about the lungs. Are there reasons to be less afraid of marijuana, less afraid of, I don't know, fruit punch, <laughs> vape, whatever it is? Or should we, if we are, if we want to protect our lungs, obviously we shouldn't smoke anything. I think is, is yeah, take the an answer. edible. That's yeah. my. I'm not an MD. I'm right. just a PhD. But my advice is take an edible. I think doctors would say that if you don't smoke, don't vape. What about your students as you walk around Charlottesville? <laughs> do you notice? pockets, rings of people smoking? Do you notice uh, people vaping? Uh, Do you notice that you don't notice that? I occasionally notice people vaping, but yes, I do notice that I don't notice it because my students tell me everybody's jeweling, that in the library, you know, of course, I'm not in the undergraduate library late at night, but that right. it's basically everyone's having a nick fit. And uh, well, I had a student just in my office today who is um, an EMT, and she said one of her coworkers as an EMT was jeweling in an ambulance as they were taking 
somebody to the hospital. So oh boy. I think yeah. I think that it, you know it is really ubiquitous for people under 25, but I think I don't I tend not to share spaces with those people, which is also kind of a legacy of this non-smokers rights movement. Like when people are juuling, they do it in segregated spaces. Uh-huh. There's always still a little bit of shame or self-consciousness, which is probably not a bad thing. <laughs> well, I guess, or I'm just old and I don't, you know, go to the same clubs as they do. But, you know, it's interesting that still young people want to try something. And I'm wondering, mm. what is that about? I know what why I started. I started in college, and I know why. But I hated smelling it and until I started to be one of those, um, you know. And then, I, of course, I became self-righteous and obnoxious once I stopped. But I guess young people, what, it, it's does it go to the Freudian oral fixation? Or do you think there's something about trying out some habit that you couldn't do at home, then now you're on your own and you can do whatever it is you want? Uh, I don't know. I think it demands to be tried. I mean, it's targeted at young people. Yeah. They, they, they see advertisements for it. And then probably once they try it, it feels good. I mean, it has a lot of nicotine, and that's a stimulant that people also find relaxing. So that's a pretty good combination. And it doesn't taste bad. It can actually taste pretty fruity and good. There might be an appetite suppressant effect that um, young women in particular might enjoy. I, I mean, You're I, right. I'm going back to smoking. It sounds so good. <laughs> it's a stimulant that relaxes you and it suppresses your appetite. Right. Yeah. And it's addictive. So Yeah. I mean, addiction works. It's a good business model unless you get regulated. No kidding. It really is a brilliant economic idea, isn't it? Yes. Until uh, the feds or uh, state government open investigations on you, it you can, you can make a bundle. Yeah. Wow. Sarah Millov, I would love to be your student. I would love to re-enroll in college and be a history major and study with you because you obviously know so much and make it fun. And um, I want to say again, the book is called The Cigarette, A Political History. And you're always welcome on our radio, even if people mansplain your books elsewhere. <laughs> Just saying. Thank you so much. Um, can you share with us your five great things, please? Sure. My first thing that I'm thinking about all the time right now is the state of New Mexico. At this time of year, especially living in Virginia, I expect there to be a change in seasons. I grew up in Florida. We had no seasons except between November and March. And so I moved to Virginia hoping, anticipating that I would get a true fall, and today is 93 degrees. And so <laughs> whatever I think about wanting that dry air, I always think about New Mexico and those the beautiful blue sky and the endless horizons. And also, I love that it's two hours off Eastern time. Oh, so yeah. You just can't be connected. I, uh, that is a cool thing. I've only been to Albuquerque. I've never been to Taos or Santa Fe. You but, have to go. Yeah, that's what I hear. I, it's so easy. It's the best place to visit because you fly to Albuquerque, and Taos and Santa Fe are only an hour and a half away. Oh, wow. You don't, you don't have to airport hop, just get in a car, and driving is kind of a pleasure there. Good to know. Okay. Yeah, I, um, okay, number two. Number two is archivists and librarians. Now, I'm a historian after all, so I had to bring in something kind of nerdy. But just this profession does not get enough credit. Their whole job is to bring information to people, which is like this great democratic thing. But they also have these amazing skills in taking care and preserving the past. And there are all these amazing online exhibits that I found invaluable um, for teaching. And you can really get lost for hours. And I was just browsing um, New York Public Library has some really great uh, online exhibits. So props to archivists and librarians for their skills. Uh, they, I totally agree with you. And nowadays, because the enormous homeless population sometimes mm -hmm. seeks refuge, especially in a cold, wintry place, 
like New York because they seek solace and comfort and shelter in libraries. Librarians are now trained to also be social workers. Just It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, we shouldn't have to have one person doing two jobs, but it just many mad props the people who have those jobs. Yep, I agree. I agree 100%. You know, there used to be a phone line. I should test it out and see if it still exists at the New York Public Library and many, many states' uh, public libraries where you could call up and ask a question. It could be, you know, uh, you were writing a paper and you wanted to know when Martin Luther published his first ban, or you could want to know what the population was of rural Poland, and they would tell you. They would either research it on the spot because they knew where to go, or they would call you back within an hour with information. And once when I was writing a book, it was very late in New York, I called the public library of Honolulu and got some research because I was desperate to have it that night. And this was before, of course, the internet. So I, I too, cannot commend uh, librarians strongly enough. So good for that. That actually resonates with something in the book. The woman who sued her employer called the librarian at Rutgers to get information about had anybody sued their employer for allowing smoking. And the reference librarian put her in touch with a law professor that then handled her case. Oh, my gosh. I love that. (laughs) That is fantastic. Okay, number three. Okay, number three is a favorite thing of all working moms, which is daycare. Mm -hmm. Um, Though I did submit these uh, five things, and the day after that, I got strep throat. Oh, no. I'm still holding to my guns. I think people who provide care work are amazing, and uh, I'm grateful every day that my kid comes home uh, with only a couple of bruises, as she did yesterday. I had <laughs> oh, to sign no. her an incident report. Oh, baby. No. It's going in the baby book, baby's first incident report. Oh, well, I'm sorry about that, but it it's does. Okay. It's, it's good for babies to be around other babies. It's fine. It's good for me to live with a bruise and to... Uh, let go a little bit. Yeah, that is good training for a new mom. Okay, number four. Um, Well, my students. And I say this because they're so critical. Not not of me, of course, but yes, of me a little <laughs> bit. Uh, but but so I'm I'm a geriatric millennial. And these students are so much more willing to criticize politics and power than my generation was or than I was when I was um, in college. And I'm kind of thinking, maybe it's just Greta Thunberg in my ear, but I'm kind of thinking that there's this real generational revolt happening, that students in college are very willing to criticize older generations and history because they're in part angry about climate change and that spirit kind of shapes their approaches to other social questions. And so as a history professor, I love it. Uh, uh, well, of... I'm so impressed by by her, actually, yeah, yeah. and by Emma Gonzalez and Cameron and David at Parkland of Parkland High School. Right. I mean, the, it's Hogg, yeah. Uh, David Hogg. Yeah. I mean, these are fearless and also, in my mind, utterly utterly articulate, no ums, no pauses, no hesitation to say exactly what they mean, which is really impressive. I know. I mean, I think we could all learn something from uh, listening to the speeches they deliver and the passion and the the clarity. And I think also just the vulnerability. Yes. That there's the, the guard is up less and there's something so clarifying about that. They're not trying to pretend that they're not afraid or they're not angry. And that honesty is you know, galvanizing uh, to everybody. I agree. Excellent. And number five. This one is kind of silly, but I really have enjoyed lately getting dropped off and not driving places. And I know you live in New York and have the pleasure of walking places. I'm so jealous of that. But 
it's almost as good to be driven by your partner and, and yes. to try to hitch a ride home later. I know you might, I might be imposing upon my friends, but even if I have to wait to get picked up again, that moment of waiting, those 15 minutes of just sitting in place and not being able to do anything else, are, it's really pleasurable. Well, it's good for the brain to sort of do nothing or just have idle time to use your imagination, isn't it? Isn't it refreshing? Yeah, and just the feeling that I can't do anything else. Like, I, this is not maximizing time. I, I made this decision to get to from A to B in this way for other reasons. It's not to maximize time, and it's, it's really liberating to not always be trying to go to point C. And I I notice when I'm waiting, when I'm waiting for something or someone or even an Uber or something, I try not to be on my phone the whole time because that doesn't do it. That just keeps the the rhythm of panicked, yeah. panicked information seeking, which is not good for us. I know. We all need to do better with that. My small effort toward that is inconveniencing my friends by asking them to drive me home. Well, you know, it started with Clara and Gasp. It can start with you. That's a true, a social movement where we all help each other drive less and uh, disconnect, I think, is a good thing. I do, too. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, good luck with the book. Again, it's called The Cigarette, A Political History, and it's published by Harvard. Thank you. It was such a treat for me. Thank you. All the best. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Sarah Milov, author of The Cigarette, A Political History, published October 2nd by Harvard University Press. You can follow Sarah on Twitter at allofmilov, A-L-L-O-F-M-I-L-O-V. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio. And if you like it, please give it a rating. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday. If she remembers. 